Amen. Thank you, Liza. Well, church, we are coming to the end of our Behold Your King series. And I think it's just fitting that we're seeing this end while we're in Advent. Because Advent is reminding us that our King is indeed here. So I praise the Lord for that. Oh, yes, tot time. Thank you. I've got it in my notes, but I always miss it. So, uh, yes, if you have a child who is ages three to six years old and potty trained, uh, feel free to uh, get up, dismiss them, uh, or take them back to the Marsha room, which is in the back corner of the building over there. All right, church, our scripture today is in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 42. Will you stand with me if you're able and read with me? Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Father, in your tender mercy, help us to hear from you this morning. May you work in our hearts, and may your work bear abundant fruit. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, today we really do kind of arrive at the climax of chapter 10, this kind of speech that Jesus has been giving to his disciples, and we have some profound, profound words that Jesus says. He has words about losing our lives. I think normally we don't like losing things. Usually the only thing that we actually are interested in losing, at least in our culture, is probably weight. We're like, yes, I would, I'd go for losing some weight, especially around this time as we're eating all of the Christmas cookies. In, uh, in our household, we lost our remote uh, earlier this week. And uh, I kid you not, I was very frustrated by that. The remote to the TV. I mean, this happened on like Monday night or something. I mean, and you would think that my life had been ruined. At least that's, that's what my heart was telling me, that now that I have to physically get up and go push a button on the TV, life is awful. I was convinced that, yes, losing the remote ruined my life. We don't like to lose things. We especially don't like to have things taken from us. But here, Jesus says that the way to life is to lose it. We must lose it. Everyone who loses their life 
for the sake of Jesus will find it. Church, today, I hope that we see that following Jesus will cost us everything. It costs us everything, but it will gain us far more than we ever lost. Far more than we ever lost. You can see that even in your your worship order at the very bottom. That's where we're going today. That's what I hope you take away. Church, we are tempted to follow something other than Christ because following Christ is costly. It does cost us our life. And we think that if I follow something else, I'll have peace, security, happiness, comfort, success, respect, belonging. You could put on that list whatever you want. But Jesus shatters all of that in this passage. And he says, no, it's only in me that you will find life. We have been in our series, Behold Your King. We have seen Jesus' compassion coupled with his authority, saying, wow, this is our king. But then we've also seen him sending out his disciples, ultimately us, into the world to declare, behold your king. And today we're really faced with the question of will I follow this king and what is it going to cost me? It's our last week, and so I hope that as we arrive at this place in the text, that our hearts will burn with a passion for who Jesus is, because what we see here today really is difficult. There are hard things, and I hope that today is not a heavy like, oh, woe is us, but I hope to paint a picture of the life that Christ actually offers. So let's dive back into our text here, but let's start with our first point for today. It's pretty simple. Jesus brings division. Jesus brings division. We've been talking in chapter 10 about expectations, and so here is yet another expectation we need to have. There will be division when we follow Christ. So let's see this in the text. Jesus says it very plainly. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. This is a strong statement. The hearers of Jesus, they were expecting the Messiah to bring an era of harmony. But Jesus pushes into that and he says, hey, no, I have not come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. Now, he's speaking metaphorically. He's not talking about a literal sword at this place. We we see later on in Matthew chapter 25, the exact same book, Peter wants to use the sword to defend Jesus when he's getting arrested. And Jesus is like, no, no. Don't do that. That's not how my kingdom is coming into the world. It's not coming with the sword. So Jesus here is not talking about he's coming and bringing his kingdom and he's calling his, 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 uh, his disciples to conquer all. It's not that. Instead, he's talking about when you follow Jesus, it will divide people. There will be those who follow Jesus and those who don't, and there will be a division between them. There will be a division even in the most fundamental units of society, in the family itself. See that in 35 to 36. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Church, this is scandalous. I've said it before, but the family was their basic unit. It was where they got all of their identity and their purpose from. And Jesus here says, No, I have come to turn your family against you and you against your family. The very building block of their society, of even the created order. God created families. Families are good. But Jesus here says his kingdom is even bigger than the family. 
and it even divides within a family. This is happening around the world even today. I have uh, some missionary friends uh, in Central Asia. Their names are Rustam and Yana, and they are from Central Asia. And uh, they have had the privilege of leading many people to Christ, uh, but a, a common theme in their prayer letters, uh, this is, a, this is a, a thing that happened just a couple of months ago. Uh, they led a young woman to the Lord, but when she returned home, her mother disowned her. So Rustam and Yana had led this young college student to the Lord, and her mother found out about her faith and said, no, you cannot be my daughter. There was another girl that Rustam and Yana had led to the Lord. This particular girl was preparing for full-time ministry. When she went home this past summer, she was locked into her, in her room by her father. And then her father proceeded to arrange a marriage for her with a non-Christian man. Families, even today, are literally torn apart because of Jesus Christ. It's not as common in our society, in our culture, particularly in Sioux Center. But there are some things in the wider culture as a whole, but also are coming here, that are forcing us to divide over what Jesus has said. And I wrestled this week with trying to think, okay, what is the most clear example of this in our culture today? It's one thing for me to stand up here and talk about people in Central Asia. But what about here in the United States? I think the biggest point of division within families, at least ones that are discussing Christian things, are LGBTQ issues. Now, church, I don't talk about this type of thing too much. I want to make sure that the text is kind of clear and is, is, uh, is, is supporting what I'm trying to say. And so today I'm not going to unpack kind of a biblical view of human sexuality. That's not what our text today is about. Our text today is about how what Jesus has said divides people. And the thing that is dividing families is this question. Is this question. Now, I want to be very clear. I know that some of you in this room, you may deal with same-sex attraction or you experience even gender dysphoria. I am incredibly glad that you are here. Jesus makes it very clear that he has come to save people and he loves people and he has great mercy and compassion. So even as I talk about this issue, and I think the scriptures are quite clear about what God has designed, I want you to know that my heart for this, for what the scriptures say, is a heart of compassion and mercy. And if you want to talk to me about these things, I welcome you to come chat with me. We can even set up a time and explore these issues. But also, I'm just glad that you're here. I'm incredibly glad that you're here. By the way, um, for all of us, there's a book uh, by a guy named Sam Albury. Uh, it's called Is God Anti-Gay? Uh, it's less than 100 pages. You can see it. Short little read. Uh, it's something you can read in one sitting. And uh, it's very comprehensive but does an excellent job of laying out what has God said about sexuality. And in it, Sam Albury, he defends uh, the traditional uh, view of marriage and, and sexuality. And Sam Albury is a man himself who experiences same-sex attraction. And uh, he writes very comprehensively uh, and easy to understand. So I recommend that book for you. It's uh, pretty cheap, less than 100 pages. Again, it's Is God Anti-Gay by Sam Albury. And in, well, in there, but also particularly in the scriptures, and even Jesus, we see this in Matthew 19, 
he lays out that God's plan for sexuality is one man and one woman for a lifetime in covenantal marriage. That is the right place for sexual expression. And our culture likes to say, no, thank you. We want to be the definers of what is right and wrong. Now, in our culture, we have a temptation when one person either comes out or becomes affirming of these types uh, of, of LGBTQ issues. The temptation as Christians is to not either bring it up or to just go along with what they say or to become even affirming ourselves and to stop upholding the biblical sexual ethic and to stop upholding what Jesus has said in his word. That's the temptation because we don't want that division. I've heard from some of you in the church where you have seen in your own families this issue rear its head and it has split families or at least made it very awkward because some people are living a particular way or are affirming a particular way and others are trying to hold to what the scriptures teach and it creates this uncomfortableness there where it can even feel like, oh, are you, are you my enemy? Like, what's going on here? And Jesus tells us that this will happen. One of the primary reasons, and church researchers can, they have all sorts of statistics and figures about this, but one of the primary reasons why many people who profess to be Christians today become affirming and say, hey, it's okay that you're going to live your life the way you're living it. One of the primary reasons that happens is because someone in their family or someone that they're close to experiences same-sex attraction or is become, becomes affirming themselves. And basically, what happens is they don't want to experience that division, and so they go the easy road. But Jesus here has profound words, and he tells us we should expect that division. Jesus brings division. But that's also not the end of the story. Because division's going to happen. And there's only one way to cling to the truth in light of division. And that's having Jesus as your first love. But having Jesus as your first love brings such great reward. So here's a second idea. Jesus must be our first love. First love. And church, how I long for us to have Jesus as our first love so that no matter what is being said in the world around us, that we would cling, cling to Jesus because He is so good and He has our best at heart. But let's keep going in our text and see what Jesus says. Why does He say, uh, or what does He say about Him being our first love? Kind of picking up in verse 37, Jesus says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. We'll talk about thir verse 39 in a minute. But here in these three verses, you see this kind of threefold progression. Says, Jesus says, Love me more than your family. Love me all the way to the point of death. He says that's what we have to do in order to be worthy. And, and I phrase that a little awkwardly. I don't really mean that's what we do and all of a sudden God likes us. Kind of this, this idea of being, when Jesus says be, you'll be worthy of me, he's not saying you kind of earn some sort of special standing. Uh, one commentator said it this way. 
He's basically saying you have what it takes. So whoever loves father or mother more than me doesn't have what it takes to follow me. That's kind of a, a, kind of a simple way to, to, to translate or understand what Jesus is saying there. You have to love Jesus the most in order to have what it takes to follow him. That is the price of discipleship. Him being the king. We've seen him as the king throughout Matthew, particularly in these past few chapters. And Jesus is saying, this is the cost. Will you acknowledge me as king? We often give lip service to saying we love Jesus more. Oh, I love Jesus more than my family. I love Jesus to the point of death. Of course I do. But is this reality? If we look at our lives, do our lives really look like we love Jesus the more, more than anything? Church, I'm convicted because I think a lot of times my life looks like I love me far more. I love my satisfaction and my comfort and my purposes more than Jesus. I've got four T's that you can think through, your, and I've used them before. Your time. Where's your time going? Your talents. What are you devoting your talent energy to? Where do you serve? Your treasure. So your time, your talents, your treasure. Where's your money going? But also a fourth one is your thoughts. What's going on in here? What are you thinking about all day? Do you think about Jesus? Do you dwell on what he has said in his word? Do you meditate on what's there? Or is he an afterthought? Or do we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly? Do we take every thought captive to what God has said? Do we meditate on his word day and night? Where are our thoughts going? A good way to do that is to seek to memorize Scripture. Then it's there. That doesn't mean you'll automatically meditate on it, but at least there'll be something there for you to think about. So again, Jesus talks about loving Him over their family. That is their, that's over their first priority. That's, that was what they valued the most. What we value the most, it may be our family, it may be something else. I, I asked uh, the men on Tuesday morning at AM Theologians, and some of the answers were success. They value success the most, comfort, independence, family, sports. For me, it can feel that way when my Indiana Hoosiers lose like they did yesterday. It kind of ruins my whole day. You can know uh, how IU did by just kind of looking at my face for several hours after the game. If I have a scowl, You'll know. But that reveals my love. And I, oftentimes, honestly, I will let what happens in a basketball game dictate how I view the world more than what Jesus has said. But what Jesus has said is true. We don't love losing what is precious to us. Are we willing to lay those things down for Jesus, because that's basically what Jesus is asking in verse 38. He starts with family, and then he goes to their very life. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. This is the first mention of the cross in the book of Matthew, right here. Now, we hear this, and our kind of the way we use it in our vernacular would be like, oh, that's my cross to bear. Church, I've been having a sore neck all week. It, it's been awful. And it's easy to think, oh, it's just my cross to bear, that my, ne- my neck hurts. But that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying it's not just some inconvenience or even some bad thing that's happening to you. He says, no. Remember, the cross was an execution device. 
And so to take up your cross is what you did when you were condemned to die. They put the cross on your back and you would carry it to the place where you would be executed. So Jesus says, are you willing to follow me to the point of death? Remember, Jesus took up his cross and was crucified for us. And he says, if you are going to be my disciple, if you're going to have what it takes, you need to take up your cross and follow me. Your very life can't be worth more to you than me. Are you willing to die? Very few things in life require that level of commitment. My IU basketball team never asked me to die before. I felt like dying, but never asked me to die. Very few things require that of us. Our Christian life requires us to have a willingness to say, Jesus, I love you more than my own life. Where's your heart, church? Where's your heart? Now, this isn't where Jesus stops. Jesus doesn't stop and say, take up your cross and follow me. He goes on to speak some beautiful truth. Beautiful truth. Because we need to be told why we need to have Jesus as our first love in the first place. Why have Jesus as our first love? It'll cost us everything. Why do this? We get everything in return. And that's where we get the beautiful truth of verse 39. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. When Jesus says he finds his life, it's the idea of preserving his life. So the person who is seeking to preserve his life in this world or to find his life in this world. Basically doing the things that the world wants or trying to just get by in the world, keep my head down, not speak for Christ, not face judgment and persecution from the surrounding culture. Whoever keeps his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life, lets it be destroyed, lets it be taken, will find it. Now, this isn't saying, in order to be saved, you need to go be martyred. No, Jesus is talking about your passions and desires, your willingness. We have to give him all. He is the king. And he promises us great reward. Jesus is worth it. He says, there is life to be had in me. We are constantly searching for life, are we not? When you think about your day, you are searching for life. You're going to work so that you can have money. Hopefully you also enjoy your work, but maybe you don't. You're wanting life. You do things with your family because you want life. You have hobbies because you want life. You do all of these things because you want life. And the problem is we look to those things for ultimate satisfaction instead of looking to the Creator, Jesus Christ Himself. For ultimate satisfaction. We were created to find satisfaction in our Creator. That's how we were wired. Everything else doesn't satisfy. And so as we continually try to seek life in these things, even in our very own lives and even in our families, things that are good, if I try to seek life in that, if I think I'll have life just by preserving my life, I won't have life. It won't satisfy. It goes against what God has actually created me to do and to be. 
I am created to worship Him and find life in Him, in God alone. Think about it this way. We all enjoy dessert, do we not? Well, maybe not all of you, but many of us, we enjoy dessert. And if you were trying to find life or sustenance in dessert, you wouldn't be finding life at all. If you are incredibly hungry, as much as you love ice cream, you know, I've talked about ice cream in the past couple of weeks. As much as you love ice cream or candy or whatever, that's probably not what you want for dinner. Because you know that's going to leave your stomach hurting and will not satisfy any sort of hunger that you have. You want a real meal. We are looking to the desserts of the world, good things that God created, like family, and we are looking to those things for purpose. And meanwhile, Jesus is saying, and only in me will you find purpose. And only in me, as you eat my meal, find satisfaction in me, will you actually be able to enjoy the dessert that I have for you. The meal must come first. Jesus must be our first love. And that is where we will find life. Isn't that glorious that there is life to be had in Jesus? We spend so much time searching, and it's here. For those of you in this room who are wrestling with this question of Jesus, is what you're living for now worth it? Is it satisfying? Or does it feel bland or even awful? Is it satisfying? Jesus here, he promises you life if you would turn to him. It's costly. It'll cost you everything, but it is here. And you can do that because Jesus died on the cross for sins. He went to the cross willingly, lived a perfect life, did not deserve to die. You and I deserve to die. We deserve eternal separation, eternal damnation from God because we've rebelled against Him. But in His love, God sent Jesus Christ to be the perfect payment for us. And we can believe in Him. And He offers us life. It is only through Jesus that we can have life because Jesus is the only payment for our death. You can either pay that yourself and die and be eternally separated from God or you can believe that God loves you and sent Jesus to die for you. Whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. That is the promise. But for all of us in this room, for those who are following Jesus as well, this is a promise for us. We need to be reminded that whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for Jesus' sake will find it. What is one thing that you are tempted to love more than Jesus? We all have it. We all have something in our life that we look to and we say, I wouldn't want to lose that. What are you tempted to love more than Jesus? A way to see if you love something more than Jesus, whether that be sports, family, success, comfort, independence, whatever, you can ask, if I had to give that up in order to follow Jesus, would I do it? Would I do it? If you're struggling with that answer, or if the answer is no, then perhaps you need to say, Jesus, please help me to love you more than this thing. Because church, he is worth it. He promises life. Famous quote by the missionary Jim Elliott. 
He says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliott lived out those words. He, and, he was one of five missionaries who was killed while trying to bring the gospel to a tribe in Ecuador of, of natives. He lost his life, but he was willing to do so because he knew he could not keep it. Church, what would we look like as a church if this described the way that we lived? That we loved Jesus so much that we did not care about our reputations. We did not care about people hating us. We did not care about keeping our stuff. If we loved Jesus so much that we said, Jesus, I just want you to be known. What would that look like in our community? As we love Jesus rightly, all of the things that we are tempted to love will then be, as we love Jesus rightly, we'll be able to love those things rightly and we won't have to cling to them anymore. Uh, many years ago when I was a young man, actually I was a boy, Listen, let's, not be, let's not be kidding. When I was a boy, I was maybe 10, I remember going to Taco Bell uh, with my family and yes, I do love Taco Bell. It started at a young age. And I remember being at Taco Bell, and this guy walked in, and he had like Jesus buttons. I think he had a little Jesus flag coming out of his hat. He had a Jesus hat, Jesus shirt, Jesus backpack. I mean, everything about this guy, like said Jesus. He was weird, okay? Like, that was not normal to be dressed that way. He was weird. And I, I remember this guy very clearly. But it's not just because of all of his stuff. The thing I remember about him was the joy that he had. I cannot wait to get to heaven and find this guy and talk to him and be like, I was a 10-year-old boy and you impacted me. I was not a Christian at that point in my life. But I remember that guy because of the joy. He had found something. He didn't care how he looked because he knew that Jesus was worth it. And so his whole life revolved around wanting others to know about this king that he had. I remember him even talking about Jesus to the people that were serving, the, the cashier and stuff. Now, he wasn't like sharing the gospel. He was just like, yeah, the Lord made today. Jesus is good. Like, that was the extent of it. But I remember that decades ago. I remember it. He found something. He found life in Christ. The Christian life is about losing all things. But at the same time, we gain all things, meaning, love, joy. Jesus needs to be our first love. Now, this would be a good stopping point, but I want to finish the discourse because I, what Jesus does is move really into a response and kind of recaps everything. So that may feel like kind of the high point of where we are, and it is. But I want us to look at this last little section here just briefly so we can see what Jesus has to say about his messengers. Our love and reception of Jesus is revealed through our love and reception of his people. So just really two words, love and reception. Our love and reception of Jesus is revealed through our love and reception of his people. In other words, the people of God receive the people of God. So if you're wondering, am I loving Jesus first and foremost? You can look and see what your reception of the people of God are like. Let's real quick look at the text. Jesus starts with, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. So again, he's saying, you are my representatives who receives, if they receive you, they're receiving me and God. 
And then in verse 41, the one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. The one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And then verse 42, and whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. This is the same message that Jesus started with at the beginning of chapter 10. He says, people are either going to receive you or they're going to reject you and the message of Jesus. Those are the two options. This section is asking, what's our response to Jesus going to be? Are we going to be people that receive his people? Jesus basically gives three sets. He starts with prophets, then righteous person, then little ones. Kind of these ever-expanding circles of disciples. You know, the prophets, the ones who are going out and declaring and explaining. Then just righteous people, also people who are going and declaring. And then he kind of just encompasses everybody. The little ones, the least of these. The disciples, that because he is a disciple is talking about the little one, not the person receiving. That is saying, how you receive the disciples demonstrates whether you are receiving Jesus. Now, to receive a prophet is basically to receive someone who is known to be a prophet and to say, yes, I want your message. Same thing with the the, uh, uh, righteous person and disciple. So, Jesus then offers a reward. That reward kind of goes back to the idea of life. Life. The reward is the edification, the blessing, the, the, the... the life that comes with the message of the kingdom, this behold your king, we get life. So to put it really simply, Jesus is basically saying those who receive my people receive me and my message and receiving the people and message of God results in reward. And that reward is life in the kingdom that you can't lose. Church, are we going to respond with that? He's not just saying be hospitable here. He's saying find life in Christ and love my people you will get a reward, peace with God, life in his kingdom. So for us, walking away with this, this last bit of the discourse, you may feel like, okay, I was thinking about loving Jesus in the previous section and he's my all. This section really needs to challenge us and ask us, how are we doing with loving those in the family of God? Are we receiving the family of God? of God? Do I have a soft heart to them and the message? You may feel like you've surrendered all to Jesus, but is that reflected through how you lay down your life for the people in the church? Maybe you're like, Jesus, I will lay down my life for you. And then Jesus says, well, will you lay it down for my people? Mm, I don't know. I've met them before. <laughs> Not sure about that. But that's what he's calling us to do as a church. We behold our king, but then we get to be in the kingdom together, and we find that life together. Eternal life is not just something far off in the distance that we have in heaven, but it's something we have together here and now in Christ as we await the return of our king. It is a both and, an already but not yet. May that be true of us. Jesus is going to divide us from those we are close to as we walk with him. But we cannot fear that division as we cling to Jesus as our first love. And as we cling to Jesus as our first love, we should be loving his people as well. And ultimately, church, following Jesus will cost us everything. But you will gain far more than you lost.
and gain Jesus himself. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you were compassionate. We thank you that you sent Jesus to us and for us. We thank you that Jesus is our king. Help us to see him clearly, to love him more, to cling to him above all things. May we not be distracted by the world. Thank you, Lord, for your graciousness to us. Help us to surrender and yield all things to Jesus, our God and Savior. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.